Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright, and I'm considering removing myself from this environment. Today we're talking about Minute 68, which begins with Natasha in action and ends with Natasha telling Bruce that Loki's manipulating him. Joining us on the show today, it's Kyle Olson from Seasons 2 and 3. Hello, Kyle. You know, I spent like two years uh, for different movies on the shows disassembling films for the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe. Uh, and, and now, now you've suddenly, assembled. We're assembling it. <laughs> so things have changed. All things have really together. changed. One minute at a time. <laughs> That's right. What's old is new, Kyle. <laughs> that is right. Yes, sadly, I am I am here representing Team Incredible Hulk and Team Iron Man 2. Uh, unfortunately, Rob Cabasco could not join us. He got pulled away to his own avenging. Uh, so he, I will have to do double duty. I mean, oh. what? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, hopefully he'll be able to uh, repair the hole in the sky with his own little <laughs> missile or whatever he needs to do. Can we, just take, playing... can we just take Kyle doing that bit? I mean, what? And just insert that throughout the show? <laughs> sure, you know, you can, <laughs> you can just cue me, and I'll be yeah. happy to do <laughs> Do we have that on a soundboard somewhere? I mean, guys, what are we really talking about here? <laughs> 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 uh, missed oh. that guy. I know. Well, my first question as we get started here. So you, we're going to be talking about uh, the next five minutes with you. You uh, picked a chunk 68 through 72. I don't know if it was just you or you and Rob in collabor- collaboration or what, but I'm curious why this set of minutes? What drew you to this part of the film? Uh, no, it was me. Uh, he he, oh, he okay. deferred to my judgment, basically, because this is my favorite scene in this movie. Uh, and this is one of my favorite movies. And I say that, like, uh, what, what is the what is the code word for the auteur? Tignataro. Tignataro. Okay, it's, it's interesting that you have a person that we no longer like and using the name of a person that we do like, but well, your show now, so I there's guess a that's very what we'll specific do. reason. Do you know very why? Specific. No, I don't know why. In the movie Army of the Dead, uh, oh, there was an actor. The, the, there was the an actor switch, cast the, in the a particular role. And, uh, okay, yeah, got it. Exactly. It was Christopher Plummer for a while, but <laughs> and then, <laughs> okay. and then, then he died. Then, then he died, and then became weird. sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Okay. And so, so take and you know, I just feel like if if there's a person out there who would appreciate the humor in the whole thing, it's Tignataro. It's That's Tignataro. very true. That is very true. Uh, yeah. So uh, as a, as a person who uh, was a huge fan of Tignataro, once stood in line for three hours to meet. Tig. Oh wow! Oh uh, dear! I was especially heartbroken uh, when I learned that the person that I had taught me about uh, being a feminist turned out to be a uh, predator who uh, used his position to um, inflict mental and uh, <laughs> uh, awfulness on the women around him. Uh, so yeah, so this is very bittersweet for me because I absolutely love this movie. I'm going to say nice things about it, but I say this knowing full well the person behind it turns out to be not who he presented himself to be. Yeah. Tig. Tig. Yeah. Looking at you. Ugh. Very frustrating, especially coming in on the heels of this conversation. I mean, it's a fantastic conversation that we've had between Natasha and Loki, this conversation slash interrogation slash these mental games and manipulations, however you want to look at it. But there has been there have been a few things thrown around in this conversation that is pretty ugly, in particular when you uh, when 
the truth about Tig kind of came out. Then it just yes. made that whole scene go. Ooh, yeah. Let me just say, I I really hope Chat GPT doesn't get a hold of any of our episodes this season and transcribe it for the internet because <laughs> Tig Notaro would end up looking very bad, and yeah. we apologize for <laughs> we that. Have, we have- we the real Tig Notaro, we love you so much. That's absolutely so, true. Just say that for the internet. Tig Notaro, movies, we, movies, Marvel movie minute loves you. That's right. Yeah, Tig but I, I imagine uh, you know air quotes yeah. around every time we say it, Chad Tig GPT, Notaro. Please use air quotes around the words Tig Notaro. I think it'll get that. <laughs> it's it's smart, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. It's I'm artificial, sure. but it's still intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. you know, what's, I mean, here we are in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What's the worst thing AI could do? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Okay. So, um, well, we're in this scene. Uh, we're, let's talk about this scene before we get into the scene in the Wishbone Lab. So we're, we have the end of the scene between Natasha and Loki. We, Pete and I, have talked a lot over the last few minutes with various guests about the fact that this is the third time that we have seen Natasha using this very trick on people. We saw it in with the Russians. We saw it with Bruce when she first uh, talks to him. And now she's doing it again here. How does it play for you, Kyle? Do you, do you feel like it was uh, three third times a charm? Does it was it like a little too much, or does it work? No, I think I think it worked. I think it really works. I remember this being a huge crowd pleasing moment, like the moment like it from the last minute uh, where she turns. And it's just like, not like, you know, that thing like, oh, like she's she's tormented. She's affected. Then turns around and goes, that's what you're doing. I remember the whole audience being like, oh, I think it's great. So we get to see because in this world of super soldiers and armor and space gods, she's a girl with a gun and will remain so through the rest of the thing. Like at this point. She, she's basically just a well-trained spy. We, I, you know, having spent a lot of time watching uh, her every move in Iron Man Two, not in a creepy way. It was my job. Um, <laughs> I, you know, like she's just she's no more. She's no better than Jason Bourne. Like she's just a regular sort of person at this point. But like this ends up being her superpower is that she can she has this manipulation thing she can get people thinking that she's feeling or doing one thing and it turns out she's doing a completely different thing and 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 also she's there's a she has a a soul of iron you just don't know it <laughs> right exactly yeah so coming out of this like basically to her being like you know legit like honestly the the, the most sincere thing in all this in the, in the scene is her turning and saying Thank you for your cooperation. <laughs> right? <laughs> she, I, I believe she honestly means it. Yeah. Like, no, hey, absolutely. thanks for that. For sure. Well, that's what's so interesting about it, because it is the third time that she's done it in the film. But as an audience member, it it's like I still feel fooled every time I'm like, oh, she's doing it again. You know, it, it's like I didn't watch those first two. And then this scene starts and go, oh, she's doing it again. Like it, it was a great surprise. And it plays so well into that. So you realize, oh, of course, this is her superpower. And she's she's using it well. And um, it's it's nice to see. And I, I love the way that. Uh, that Scarlett Johansson is playing the character through it because she's really, you know, giving a lot of interesting reactions to Loki and really making it seem like she's playing right into his hands, which of course, you know, is him with his ego thinking that, of course, this is exactly how it was going to go because I'm so good at this. Right. I think that's one of her other things is that she's really good at reading people. So she knows exactly what it's going to take to like, cause you can see, the difference in how she approaches Banner 
versus how she approaches Loki. Like that, you know, there's still it is a manipulation, but it's a very different thing. I, 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 it's interesting to see now coming into here how different she is from Iron Man two because I feel like she was really underutilized in Iron Man two, and now in, in this you get to really see her shine for sure. That there that earns her place on the team right there. Yeah, even in so far as she and and you know uh, Renner have their conversations later about how bonkers it is that they're they're humans in a world of gods and and super powered beings i i feel like she absolutely earns her place on the team not for for many reasons not for the least of which that she's able to see in loki just how wired for ego he is and to play him like a just a perfect fiddle like he is he comes at this imagining that he has the upper hand, not knowing, even as she is manifesting tears in her eyes, talking about, you know, her history that she's, you know, that that she's actually been playing him the whole time. Yeah, it's, it's basically that like uh, just a couple lines of dialogue from from the last minute become the basis of an entire movie down the line. And we still don't have all those answers. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. What happened in Sao Paulo? Come on. I know. <laughs> it's, it's so much, somebody had to write fan fiction about that. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it is great. I, I really love it. I do think it's funny that with all of this, that the Marvel wiki still lists her as only level six. She has not made yeah. it to level seven. Like Clint Barton has, I don't know what it's going to take. But uh, I don't know. Maybe she's level seven now that the sexism is everywhere, even in the MCU, even in yeah. the MCU. Shield. Yeah. And, and she's Come probably on. making 25 percent less than Clint is as well. Probably. Jeez. I want to talk uh, just real quick about a technical um, element here in the way that the film is put together. Sometimes, I mean, you know, filmmaking is hard. It's hard to know how scenes are going to cut together there as, as she walks away and she stops we already talked about that moment where she stops and says you know thank you for your cooperation and we have a cutaway to loki when when we see her she turns toward camera and she's looking uh, toward the camera uh, toward the camera but like kind of a little off screen um screen left and then we cut to loki and instead of like a shot reverse shot we're left with a profile of loki also looking screen left and it just that cut, I mean, it makes sense, I suppose, in the scope of, you know, we were just in the scene and so we understand kind of who they are and where they are. But it ends up feeling like they just didn't end up having the right shot of him to cut to. And it's this very minor thing, but it's one of those things, especially when you're breaking a movie down minute by minute, where you really start noticing the shots and how the how they're constructed and which ones are working and which ones aren't. Yeah, I say I, I sort of took it as as opposed to him looking on at her and like anger or whatever. It's him turning to the side, going, "What? What just happened?" Like it's sort of like the looking away to be like him replaying the conversation in his head. Like how did how did you do that? Uh, yeah, I, I think you could probably see it that way. I, You're probably right though. It probably was like they he needed he needed a reaction shot. He didn't have one, so he got what he could, he put in what he could. Yeah. And then, but because uh, because of you know exactly what you just said, I think that they in the editing room they probably said you know what, but if we do it this way, it's you can read it that way, and I think that's where they get away with it, right? Yeah, yeah. So from this, we cut to this random 
internal workings of the helicarrier shot uh, that shows us like this platform in front of a, I don't know, there's a blue light behind a panel, and then the camera booms up and pans left, and we reveal the window to the wishbone lab. It's a strange shot that is inserted here that I guess is just designed to get us from one level of the helicarrier to the other, getting us from the level where the prison is up to the level where the lab is. And it's also designed to provide character movement, because as we come up, it allows Fury to come in. And I guess the only other reason that it's here is just giving us some geography, because we are going to need to have seen this space where uh, where Bruce and Natasha are actually going to land when they get blown out of this very window in a few minutes after the explosion hits the ship. Yeah, I always appreciate a geography shot. You know, just like let me let me see the room, let me see sort of where everything is before it all kicks off. I think I think it's that the, the latter. I think it's showing us it does connect there. I also think that's where Cap comes from. Oh yeah, from his hunt. As I was watching it go on there, because like he's the next person. Like after after Fury comes in, he's the next person that comes in. I think that's where he came from. I think he comes up from in the bowels of the ship with the gun, and that's where he comes from. And then that when he uh, when he arrives with his uh, new toy, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it's it's definitely a shot designed to give us a sense of people are moving from one place to another. And let's start with Nick because yeah. Nick walks in. Uh, it's I mean, it is one of those uh, those shots that is just designed to give us a sense of space. So because we're going to need to know it. And so, yeah, to your point, it's appreciated. It's just a little funky of a shot, but at least we are getting some of that in here. So we know where these spaces are. It's a little bit of a funky, like, it's a funky space. I don't actually, you know, envy them trying to shoot practically, you know, the combination of sets and green screens that are required to make this thing a reality. And so to me, I I'm, I, I think the mechanical purpose of this shot is is satisfying, right? I like knowing how they all come together. That makes a lot of sense to me. So have you guys figured out the geography of the ship? Because I've always, I'm always trying to figure out where this is. So this is out the back? Yeah, the Wishbone Lab is the bottom back of the ship. And, and then, you know, the opposite direction. Like if you walk out the doors and go the opposite direction, you're going to walk up to the bridge, uh, which is at the front bottom of the ship. And this wishbone lab has these two windows on either side. The one that we're coming in through is on kind of uh, the four, I guess I would say, side of the wishbone lab. And the window that we see behind uh, Bruce and Tony as we come into it, that's that big open space with the big, I don't know why there's this giant hangar sort of thing there. Uh, it's not like we see ships coming and landing there like you would in a, in a spaceship, spaceport sort of thing. I just imagine it's more like a, a carrier, like it's an elevator that takes them up to the surface. Oh. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's but how, it's just, that's how it's aircraft a, carriers work, right? But it's Well, it's a huge open space all the way to the back and opens up in the bottom as well. Like the whole bottom is open. So mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a really funky design. I'm not exactly sure why they felt they needed this much space other than later in the film, we are going to need to get a Quinjet in here to shoot at Hulk. It's like, a, is that the only reason that we have this here? I don't know, but perhaps. It's the colorectal laboratory. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's canon. <laughs> I will write the wiki and make sure they get that changed. <laughs> <laughs> and they can cite this episode. <laughs> 
That's right. Yes. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, all right. We're coming into the Wishbone Lab here, and uh, this is the scene that you wanted to talk about. We're starting. We have Tony and Bruce sitting here. They have been poking away. Or I should say Tony specifically has been poking away, trying to crack into S.H.I.E.L.D. systems here. And Fury arrives in time to say, what are you doing, Mr. Stark? And, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, how do you want to kick this conversation off? Because there's certainly going to be a lot of it over the next five minutes, Kyle. Right. Uh, Yeah, because this is, I think, where uh, Marvel ended up distinguishing themselves even in the 60s, you know, when they came out against the distinguished competition, is that all their heroes got along. Like, all their stuff, like, Justice League was harmonious, like they they both they were all buddy buddies doing anything, and then in the in the in the '60s when Stan Lee sort of came up with this and started then having characters interact with each other, and Avengers, they did not get along. Uh, they were and they ended up fighting each other. Like my my second favorite scene is one you guys have already done, which is the fight in the in the woods. Sure, like because that's pure Marvel right there. Of like, hero meets a hero, does not understand, really bad at listening, antics ensue. Uh, And so we're going to see that right here is that all these characters who are all heroic and all righteous and all correct in their individual bubbles are about to start ping-ponging off of each other, partially due to machinations, but everything they're saying is true and and things that they believe, it's just being exacerbated by an outside force. And that's like, that's pure Marvel. And you can see that it ends up influencing a lot of the films and comics and everything that comes afterwards, where they're just like, oh, people want to see heroes fighting heroes. Like, no, <laughs> that's not the point. <laughs> the Batman right. v Superman colon, you know, is not really the point of, of this whole thing. It's the idea is that they believe what they believe and aren't really good at listening to what other people are saying. Uh, and so they do it. So that, this, is, this is why I love this part. And, and it is exceedingly well written. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that this this minute kicks off one of those one of those like legendary dialogue runs of Dignitaro. That's right. It's just there is a skill. There is just a skill and a natural ear for how these conversations unfold, and they and they all sound different. Yeah, you know, it's like coming from the same pen, and yet this is the the skill of good dialogue right there Aaron Sorkin has it too that like you can have even though it's one person they're all using the same sort of thing they all sound different and yet still has that same flow and it's a real skill particularly in this scene once uh once everybody arrives and it's not going to be in today's minute but it will certainly be uh you know in the next few minutes as dialogue starts overlapping and we end up with this massive confused conversation of six people talking and responding to one another and bouncing off each other and somehow it all kind of makes sense and all of these little conversational threads like we understand what they're talking about where it's all going and and why they all are having these saying these things to each other it's a it's a fascinating bit of construction trying to put something like this together. It's, it's a very interesting uh, and complex bit of writing to do here. And they actually get to see all of these people as, well, quote-unquote, humans, even though a couple of them aren't. Entirely. As opposed to, uh, you know, flying around and shooting lightning at each other. Like, this is also just as important of a, of a fight scene. 
Very true. And to a certain extent, I probably appreciate this fight scene more than the one in the forest, which, as <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I'm sure people have heard me go on and on about some of my frustrations there, because like, why are they just not listening to each other? Why do they just talk, not talk and go through this whole stupid fight? The testosterone this gets is, in your ears and you this, can't hear it. I know. This for me is so much better. Because it's the same thing, and they don't have to be, you know, hitting each other. And I find that this sort of conversation and this sort of battle, this, this as they're trying to figure all these different puzzle pieces out, is really interesting. Because here we have Fury walking in. He's upset because he found out he and and Maria Hill got this notification on their screen up in the uh, bridge. That there was a virus. I don't know why it's saying the virus is detected, but it did. And and so Fury comes in. He's pissed at Tony because Tony has been trying to crack into his system. Tony now has apparently fully swung Bruce over to his side. They are doing exactly what they set out to do. They are trying to find the Tesseract. But in the interim, they have been trying to figure out what's going on with, uh, with S.H.I.E.L.D. And they do crack in just in this moment. And lo and behold, phase two. And so now we have... Bruce and Tony realizing there's more to what Nick is saying than meets the eye, uh, the one fury eye. And <laughs> and then Steve comes in and has the evidence to show this is phase two. S.H.I.E.L.D. is using the cube to make weapons. So now you have Steve, Tony, and Bruce all working against Nick. But that's not going to last very long. And that's what's so interesting is like this is, you know, we had that moment earlier when Steve confronts Tony and and Bruce and is kind of irritated at what's going on. The fact that Tony's trying to crack into the system. But this is where Steve shifts to their side. And that moment where he says to Tony, sorry, the computer wasn't was moving a little slow for me. Like, that's a really nice moment that we have here. And I just I don't know. I, I like having this moment here where everybody's kind of trying to figure out what's going on with Fury right now. And it's like three against one, which is going to shift here very quickly. But I just, I I like that we have this moment, albeit brief, where Tony and Steve are kind of on the same side here. My question on that turn for you both is, is that, does that feel like well-written character work or does it feel like convenient plot work? Like, there are a lot of big transitions that happen in these minutes. Like, as you know, as uh, allegiances are very, very fluid, and do you, I mean, do you buy all of them? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I think that uh, like when because it, it, it's interesting to see Nick on the defensive, which we don't see very often. Because as soon as he comes in, he's like he's got an axe to grind. What are you doing to my computers? Why are you hacking them? Uh, like, why aren't you doing the thing I told you to? Oh, we did. Uh, the the new MacGuffin is sitting right over there. They introduced the the box that's going to be tracking it. We don't do that, but then immediately spins around and goes, "Yeah, but uh, what's phase two in it?" Which is nice little uh, nice little meta fiction there, you know, because we're about to hit phase two. I I, I just got to say, I'm really frustrated in the film that either the film didn't come up with something else or Marvel the production company didn't come up with something else because I'm like, do you have to have so many phase twos? Can't we just have something else? I can't wait for the next movie where they're going to say, this is phase three. We're done with these phases. <laughs> this is the last phase where everybody keeps their arms. So, you know, take yeah. what you can get. Right. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so then, uh, so then immediately, and then, and then Steve coming in with like a prop from Captain America, the first Avenger and, you know, dropping it right on the table. And then, uh, you know, so then, 
And, and Nick immediately go, turns into like, no, we weren't, we weren't developing any weapons. Like already he's lying just from, yeah. the, from the, from the first reaction to him is a lie. And then Tony flips the screen around and goes, sorry, what are you lying about? Yeah. yeah. And then so it's like, what were you lying? Just, he, and he just, but the thing is he keeps on lying. Like to the rest of the scene, like Nick, it's so ingrained in him that I, I think he's his defensive mechanism is lie. Just lie. Well, just lie. This yeah, is sure. we, we had uh, we've had another guest uh, on the show, um, Matthew Costello, and he uh, actually put this in my head and I can't unsee it, which is the whole conceit that we've had through Captain America, this demonstration that S.H.I.E.L.D. continuously pushes toward fascism and Nick is an agent of fascism. And as much as he is lying, he is, like, uh, double-dealing and trying to manipulate the heroes to do this thing while building armament and spy, uh, uh, you know, facility and technology. He is he, he is conceived as a good guy leader of S.H.I.E.L.D., and his actions indicate often otherwise. And that makes him fascinating as an agent of good and ill as a as a a complex sort of leader of humans yeah having to live in that gray area yeah and this scene is where he demonstrates can you dance nick like you're being called out by people who know better can you dance and i i think that's i think that's really fantastic well Especially for a character that has had such a little part of the films up to this point. I mean, probably Iron Man 2 is the most we ever got of him. And even yeah. there, it wasn't a lot. Yeah. And now he's like at the forefront putting this team together finally. And we get to see exactly what that means. And I mean, we've talked about this from the start. Like, you know, when he was talking to Captain America in the boxing ring and and the reasons that he's talking, the the things he's saying to him. And it's like, hmm, it doesn't sound like you're really kind of being as transparent with him right now as as you should be, especially for a person who knows more about the Tesseract than you probably do. Like there's it's just interesting the way that his character has been kind of playing everything. And, uh, you know, he's certainly an interesting character. We should say that, you know, by the time this episode's coming out, we're probably a month away from uh, Secret Invasion. So yeah, getting true. definitely a little bit more of, of him and his story. Um, and we'll see how that changes. But, but at this point, it is this real dance that he's constantly having to do through this scene. And I, I, the way that it's playing out here, we'll definitely get more tomorrow as far as kind of some reasons that when he starts kind of admitting some things. But at this point, trying to kind of come up with this whole thing and and seeing how now Steve is starting to realize this is that, you know, we talked about this when he gets that seed planted in his head by Bruce and Tony a few minutes ago about, you know, why he is the spy and he goes off and finds these weapons. This is that turn that we're starting to see with Steve of starting to realize that the world hasn't changed a bit, as he says. It's it's just like this this interesting growth of Steve, I think, as we see kind of in, coming into this scene. And I just I like this moment here where we're getting this conflict specifically between Tony, Steve and Bruce poking at Nick, because all of this is about to shift because then Thor and Natasha walk in and now we have pretty much our team barring Clint mm -hmm. all here in this room and oh, he's uh, on the way. he's on the way. He is on the way. And uh, yeah, and, and then 
as Natasha comes in, her she she sees the tension because you know Bruce asks her, "Did you know about this?" And I, I guess I would have to assume she didn't because she's only level six. <laughs> but who really knows? But that's like um, Natasha. She you, you never know what she knows. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the ultimate poker face. Like even more, she keeps her cool better than Fury in this whole scene. Yeah, no, she really does. Uh, but with the way that she ends up playing this, and this is what's interesting, and this is going to be something that starts creating more conflicts, is her focus, instead of responding, is looking at Bruce as this potential threat and kind of shifting the conversation to say, you know what, you, you might want to think about uh, removing yourself from this environment. Yes, I think that the fact that that's her only line, really, in this in this scene is really telling because... The only thing we know that scares Natasha Romanoff is the Hulk. So that is, for her, an admission of fear. But she's keeping it ice cool, like, hey, maybe it'd be a good idea if we, if you stepped outside or whatever. But, you know, internally, she is, like, freaking out. It's the, it's the we got to see that fear back when uh, uh, Bruce yelled at her uh, back in Calcutta. We got to see on her face that real fear, but like she is, I think, just as afraid right here, but she's keeping it under control. Yeah. Side side question. Do you have a strong history with the character Black Widow Natasha? Uh, I, I mean, I, I've been reading comics since, you know, since the 80s or whatever. So um, she has always been sort of in and out. Like she was already uh, a full on Avenger by the time I was reading her stuff. Okay. So, I mean, like I never got to see the transition like, because she came in as a villain, obviously, and then right, went right, over that way. But she, like, but she, in a lot of ways, the this this movie sort of shifted the power positions of of them because she was never really that central of a character outside of Avengers, right? Like, she basically was another Avenger, and she was there, and she was gone, and she was there, and she was gone. In the same way that, like, by the by, the, when the Iron Man movie came out. Nobody was talking about Iron Man. Like Iron Man had had some horrible runs, and that character was <laughs> on ice. Like, like it, nobody really wanted to touch him. Uh, and then the movie sort of brought him back into prominence. But in the same way, she's so all my I think we're, we're in situations like this where she's one of one of the team. I, I don't remember ever reading anything of her solo. Yeah. At what point did she get her own solo stuff? Do you remember? This, but very much from her prominence in the in the movies is when she sort of oh, got her okay. own. So I, I think she had had, if I remember right, I'm sure comic book fans will will, will, will correct me, but she had had some miniseries, but had never had that. She never uh, had her own solo book. That yeah, ran for a while. Gotcha, gotcha. Since uh, since uh, Pete had a little um, side question, I'm going to throw my own in. This is our first chance to chat with you about Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner and Hulk. Uh, how does this play? We've kind of been waiting to talk to you about Mark <laughs> Ruffalo, especially yeah, especially since you did a whole season on Edward Norton as yeah. uh, Bruce Banner. Uh, how does this? How does he work for you? Yeah, I mean, I I'm a big fan of Edward Norton's portrayal. I think I think he did a great job in, in that thing. Uh, but it's it's a very different energy. Because uh, you know Edward Norton has that sort of like he's you can you can see the intelligence, but you also can see that he's just a little bit frantic, like he's a little bit on edge all the time. In in some of his best roles, you can see that there's that sort of manic energy to him. And Mark Ruffalo doesn't really have that, so it's interesting to like sort of shift it because it's a very different. They weren't trying to just swap 
people that's the same thing. It's it's a very different feel for him too. But he, I guess, Ruffalo is much more soulful. So you really get to see much more of the a wounded animal kind of thing. Of yeah. like, you can see that like the the time has it really has. You can kind of see the emotional damage that has that he's suffered at, on this thing, and and also the fact that he's been on the run and off the radar for all this time, and still trying to help. Like that's a that's a very different feeling than the end of the Incredible Hulk, where you see him like embracing the beast essentially. But now in this one, we've gone a completely different direction. That he's you know completely trying to stay away from it and trying to uh, have as much Bruce time as he possibly can. And and you know it's so much so he's now calling him the other guy. Yeah, like he's at this point he has entirely bisected it. Like it's basically like. He's 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 gone full on Jekyll and Hyde, where he's like, it's another person. It's not me. It's that guy. Right. Right. But yeah, but I'm I'm but I said like the, obviously he gets he gets a, I think better as it as it goes along or whatever too. But like I think he comes out really strong from the start in this. I think it it, it was jarring, uh, but like uh, I I really think that uh, it was good. I mean I I don't know what the back and forth was with Edward Norton if he. I don't. I don't know. I think he was entirely happy with how he was treated, or the or the ideas that he put forth that weren't followed through. So if that was what gave away, or if, if it ever even got that far, yeah, so I don't know yeah. if it was bad blood or anything too. But I'm always hoping secretly that they'll do some sort of multiversal crossover or something or other, and we get to see the two of them together because I think that would be a really exciting scene. That would be exciting, absolutely. It is interesting, and we've talked about it over the course of the uh, over, over all these episodes, like how the character of Hulk shifts after this film over the next few films, and how in this film there is this real sense of a character that is quite frightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, Natasha really is afraid of Hulk, and it just seems like there's this there's the level of who this character is that is. Um, uh, just really scary here. And it's interesting how he shifts. And I'm just curious your thoughts on how Hulk ends up kind of shifting over the franchise from this point to kind of ending up being a much more comedic character. Yeah, I, I I'm, it, it is uh, everything that happens sort of from here all the way through to where we're at now with, with smart Hulk. Uh, and I don't want to spoil what Andrew she Hulk, but him taking another role uh, in his life. Uh, but um I, it, it is all from the comics. Like the, almost everything we're seeing is Peter David. Peter David, like basically, is the one who has been, was the steward of Hulk for almost ten years, uh, guiding through all these things. Things. So smart Hulk was him. I mean, you know, the the idea of the personalities merging uh, to become one was was from his stuff. So it all is in the comic book. But at the same time, I don't know, there's there's something that I miss uh, in terms of like I, I like the idea of they they sort of brush against this in the in uh, Age of Ultron, where you got to see sort of a team member Hulk. Like, they, they, I think that actually the way, uh, the one of my favorite versions of Hulk is from um, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, the animated series that, uh, as soon as Disney bought Avengers, uh, bought Marvel, they immediately canceled it, which is <laughs> it's, it's a heartbreaker because it's one of the best, it was the best Avengers animated thing that's ever been done. They were so good in their characterization, including the including until Chadwick Boseman, the best Black Panther has ever been put on screen. Um, uh, but like, there's like the idea of Hulk as a um, semi intelligent team member. So it's not just the the beast that you Hulk smash. Like it really is someone you can have a conversation with, 
who has a point of view, who who wants to do stuff and like will do team maneuvers and things, but he's still the Hulk. Uh, like that, they skipped over all of that in the MCU, and I feel like that's what was lost. We get to see like just a glimmer of it in Ragnarok, and then he's gone. And then by the time we see him again, then he's Smart Hulk now, and it's like, oh, but, but, <laughs> but the Hulk is. Like, unbridled power but if you well can, yeah, that's yeah. the most important that's the most important thing for me too is that the hulk that we get here the guy who has fully bisected these two pieces the jekyll and hyde hulk the hulk banner that's the most compelling hulk to me it is the most compelling metaphor for grief and rage yeah uh for humanity and it is i have never really loved professor hulk more than a novelty Right. That's all it is. It's trivial to me. I haven't seen a run that really manifests that Hulk, the reason Hulk exists as a team member in a way that's satisfying at all. I would I would love to be challenged for that. Yeah. The the idea of like the the creator and destroyer. Like yeah. banner builds, Hulk yes. tears it down. Like that's the that's the the thing. And and the person who all he wants is a quiet life, and it's the one thing he can't have. All he wants is to stay in one place, and he can never stand still. Like it's it's the, the thing. And and he ends up being his own tragic hero because he has to take the monster with him wherever he goes. So that means he has to keep going. Like that's the that's the the sort of push pull of the Hulk. When you sort of combine it, then it's like. Well, you could just bring in Hank McCoy if you want to just have a, a yeah, smart right. monster guy. Smart like, monster guy who can hang from chandeliers by his Yeah, feet. I mean, sure. like I said, it's it's a legitimate thing. It's, it is from the comics. I get it. But there's a reason it didn't stick. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, that brings us to kind of we're right toward the end of this minute here because Natasha uh, tells him Loki's manipulating you. And, and then his response, which gets cut off and, and bifurcated into next uh, tomorrow's minute. But and you've been doing what exactly? I like that. So there's this element like she is trying to uh, she's trying to remove him from the space because she wants to uh, kind of not have anything kind of push him to a place where he's going to hulk out. And he's pushing back. And I think that's actually a really interesting character trait for this particular Hulk, where he's like, and, and you know, we'll certainly find out why as, as you know, as he gives us his reasons and everything about, you know, how he can control himself and whatnot. But still, this idea that here he's in this space where he's angry about the situation, angry enough to stay in it, and and I hopefully not Hulk out, but I, I find this to be another interesting character trait and another interesting element that's getting added to this conversation. Right now we have the three guys angry at Nick, and now we have Bruce kind of angry at Natasha for always trying to kind of coddle him and keep him protected. And it's going to lead into tomorrow's minute. It's almost as if the superheroes are aligning and taking sides. But don't worry, they're keeping everything really civil. In advance of some sort of internal civil war. <laughs> Yours is better. You teed it up. I just put it over the top. I know. I get it. You just out of the park. Okay. What, um, one last thing before we wrap today up, because uh, we'll certainly have a lot to talk about the rest of the week. I just want to jump back to phase two a little bit and this idea of where phase two is coming from. Um, obviously... There were a whole bunch of hydro weapons that they actually collected in the field, the Zolinator 9000 and the the Arnimulation, uh, those <laughs> those guns that they were pulling from the field. They had plenty of hydro weapons. 
clearly they're now still trying to develop more weapons. And I'm curious, I mean, obviously Fury is involved in this, but how much do you think of it, uh, of all of this came from Zola and his involvement with Hydra infiltrating uh, into S.H.I.E.L.D. over the years? Like, do you think that it was just S.H.I.E.L.D. all along that was kind of doing this, or do you think it's really because of Zola? I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, like, it really was uh, the, the Zola's the brilliant plan, if it was his plan, uh, was, you know, to exacerbate the fear, you know, to like, like, oh, we, we need these kind of things. You know who I, I know a guy who actually is really good with this particular problem. He's in Germany, but I think we can get him over, you know, that kind of thing of like, oh, we've, we've had another snag. Maybe there's another guy I worked with. He's in Argentina. Maybe we could just like fly him over and add him to the team, you know, right, right, paper right. clip him right onto the team. Maybe one might say, <laughs> um, I think so. I think, I think it's basically, it's like, you know, you're stoking the fire, stoking the fears. And then you know, basically allowing then the, to write bigger and bigger blank checks. I don't know if that's the way you use it, but hey, I'm going to go with it. Uh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, and then There's essentially, a lot of then you're writing. you're assem- you're assembling your own little secret empire uh, inside the 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 one. That's basically the a, a nice. They're building themselves a nice vibranium cocoon in which they can uh, grow whatever they want inside it. Yeah, right. It's it's just an interesting thing to think about because obviously at this point, Fury's kind of down he's he's good with all of this you know and it's yeah. it's interesting how a a hydra uh representative inside shield it may be planting all of these things but you can also see how easy it is and this goes to that whole you know fascism angle pete it's easy to see how these shield representatives can go you know what that is kind of a good idea we should do that yes yeah yeah and, and obviously as we can even see in this scene nick is looking out he's looking up He's looking out like he's not he's not looking for the enemy behind him. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You know, he's exactly. always thinking about the, the enemy out there. Exactly. Well, that uh, is a good place to wrap up today's conversation with Minute 68. We'll be back tomorrow with you to talk about Minute 69. Uh, let's see, Kyle, what uh, do you have anything to plug? Uh, yeah, the, my, my newest uh, dream project right now is the Cool Time Dice Hour. It is an actual play role-playing game that we do live at uh, NCT in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, and then we uh, record it all, and I get to do a little bit of audio sweetening, adding in sound effects and music and all that kind of stuff. So it's role-playing, uh, on stage, fun, short. You don't have to worry about the rules. You don't have to worry about systems or following heavy continuity just to, just to get in. Have fun uh, and get out. They last uh, about uh, an hour and change, uh, so they don't take up too much of your time. It's not a critical role thing where you have to devote four hours Five every hours. week. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's like I love those guys, but like I don't have that kind of stamina. Uh, so uh, it's it's good and it's fun, and uh, we're having a really good time doing it. And it's wonderful. And we should say it's it's not just on. You don't have to go to the NCT, the the neighborhood community theater, to watch it. It yes. is a podcast, and you can yep. actually yep. tune in. Um, on the True Story Entertainment That's Podcast right. Network. You can check it out there. Uh, lots of fun, really creative, very funny people involved. So check that out. We'll have the link in the show notes for all of you. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about Minute 69. So, Pete, thanks as always. All those people, those cool time guide dice hour people, they just make me feel unfunny. Everybody's <laughs> funnier than I am. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow <laughs> will be my big special day. No, probably not. <laughs> Until next time, True Believers. <laughs> Enough said.
Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>